Um, so how are you doing? We've actually been thinking a lot about you. Are you doing okay? Uh, sometimes. It depends on the day. Sometimes I feel moody. Sometimes I'm optimistic, but uh, uh, moody in the most cases. <laughs> That's a friend of Click here. His name is Stanislav, but we just call him Stan. He lives in St. Petersburg, Russia, and we first talked to him in March, not long after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And he gave us a pretty good idea of how a regular Russian was seeing the war and how it affected him personally. It is very hard when you see that all your friends, the 90% of your friends who understand what's going on, are in shock. Uh, I think already five or six families of mine already left the country by car, by airplane. Uh, I'm in panic. And truth be told, Stan wanted to leave too, but he couldn't. His wife was eight months pregnant, and he couldn't travel. Now, he has a newborn son. Damien, Damien, or something like that. Got it. Damien, I think, in, in English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Damien. <laughs> Is he sleeping? Uh, he's sleeping better than uh, others, so it's like a <laughs> gift for us. When Stan was awaiting Damien's arrival back in March, he was trying to come up with creative ways to keep his European clients happy. He does marketing for companies, specifically search engine optimization. And his overseas clients were from places like the Netherlands and Israel, and they had to abide by the sanctions. Uh, they cannot pay for, for my services right now because my bank is blocked by sanctions. Uh, so I'm trying to find the solution for my family. For a while, dabbling in cryptocurrencies allowed him to get paid. But that became harder, too. Among other things, last month, Putin banned the use of crypto to pay for goods and services in Russia. That isn't a big surprise. Putin has had a love-hate relationship with crypto for years. He's just not a fan of Russians trading currencies over which he has no control. Now, when Stan tries to trade crypto, he gets a warning a little pop-up banner on his computer. When you are making your transfer to the peer, uh, you can see the message from this bank that we know that you are trying to buy crypto and it's not allowed. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here, a podcast about all things cyber and intelligence. Today, a return to Stan, a conversation about post-invasion Russia as seen by a man who is living in it. And we speak with two Yale economists who make a very compelling case that Putin is lying when he says the sanctions aren't working and the Russian economy is doing just fine. No matter how you slice and dice, the same picture comes out, which is that the Russian economy is really, really, really being devastated. Between the unemployment, the, uh, the inflation, a lot of industry is basically slowing up and starting to, to grind to a halt so that everyday life is a lot tougher in Russia. Stay with us. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. 
Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the US government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she and will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Stan has a Russian passport, but he's half Russian, half Ukrainian. So the events unfolding in Ukraine may be more visceral for him. He's educated, a small business owner, a dad, and a voracious consumer of news, international news. I'm in the community of the people who are against the war. But when you speak with the ordinary people, just who is working in the shop, maybe uh, most of them are really supporting the war. Mm. Uh, So, you know, it can be the problem. When he tries to explain the war to his kids, he makes clear that he thinks the invasion was wrong. But he has to be careful about telling them things they might repeat at school. So I'm like, I'm trying to explain my my vision, but like in a neutral way. Right. So they don't get in trouble. Yeah. He's been watching attitudes shift in Russia since the war began. When we talked to him back in March, he said there was this big patriotic push. There were flags everywhere. And people were making a big Z sign in the air to show that they supported the war. The the, the Z sign, like Zora. But it it is the same like uh, German swastika, swastics, I don't know. Oh, yeah, 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 swastika, yeah. Now there are even more worrying signs that Putin's disinformation campaign is gaining traction. And it's not just in official ways, but in more personal ones, too. It's the little things, like the kids at his children's school began making up a new game. It's kind of a cops and robbers thing. But in this case, the Ukrainians are the bad guys. But I told my kids, you know that you have 50% of your blood is Ukrainian. Please, I hope you will never uh, use these words like the enemy. I hope you'll never use words like the enemy, he says. Stan's mother was Ukrainian, his wife is Ukrainian, but he told his kids not to talk about that. Please, but please, let's keep it, uh, like, let's keep it secretive in our family. Don't tell anyone about this. So this is a problem, yeah. He's worried that his half-Ukrainian kids will be bullied by the Russian ones. Maybe, maybe, majority of the kids are thinking that we are the good guys. When he's not anticipating the problems his kids might face at school, Stan is worrying about his business. He helps European companies market and sell their products to Russia. But with sanctions in place, they aren't allowed to do that. So that's taken a huge bite out of his business. Right now, it's uh, reducing like uh, 20% of my revenues. Stan had been trying to move money and savings around by using cryptocurrency. He was paying bills with Bitcoin, and he was asking clients to use a crypto exchange. But those end runs aren't working anymore. In addition to Moscow cracking down on crypto, 
It's actually taking aim at some of the banks. Consider the case of one of Russia's most popular online banks, Tinkoff. There is a bank uh, called Tinkoff. It was the biggest private bank in Russia, and it was very technological. One of the best in Russia. And it was one of the banks Stan was using to do his crypto trading. All the modern people in Russia uh, use this bank because it's most technological and friendly design and so on. An oligarch friend of Putin's just bought a large stake in it. And the circumstances of the sale are still pretty murky. The man who had a controlling interest in the bank was a guy named Oleg Tinkov. And, like Stan, he had opinions about the war. And he made them public in a pretty colorful Instagram post back in April. Among other things, he said that Putin had started an insane war. Days later, Russia announced that Tinkov was selling the controlling interest in the bank that bears his name. Which probably isn't a coincidence. The subtext is that Tinkoff was made an offer he couldn't refuse. What all that means for people like Stan, though, is that a bank that might have turned a blind eye to the occasional crypto trade is now much more likely to toe the party line. The central government has also proposed creating a single company that would handle all the country's classified ads which would essentially nationalize or end a company called Avita. It's the biggest classified ad company in Russia. That's one of their commercials, which are on Russian television all the time. It's like Craigslist. This is the, the biggest classified. So millions of people are selling some used goods through it. It's a big one. It's a huge huge business. But the Russian government uh, is going to make their own, uh, I don't know how to say the English. Monopoly. Yeah, the monopoly business from the government. Why? Why are they doing that? Because they want some money. So there's a private bank purchased one day, classified ads are nationalized the next. And Stan's big worry is that the Kremlin will now focus on a company called Yandex. So they are trying to destroy the big business crash. Mm, for example, they will ruin the Yandex one. Uh, this is the only search engine which um, I'm allowed to use. Yandex is known as Russia's coolest company. It's like a Russian Google. And if you're in the search engine optimization business, like Stan is, well, Yandex is pretty important. Before the war, some 50 million Russians went to the Yandex homepage every day to get the latest headlines. Now. The Kremlin is curating what appears there. And Stan worries they could start censoring search results, too. In one, two, three months, you will have some problems with, uh, with the business. I understand it right now because it will affect me and my family. When we come back, two Yale economists dig into the Russian economy and, contrary to popular belief, they say the sanctions are really biting, like South Africa during apartheid biting. Mayor of Moscow admits that there are hundreds of thousands of folks unemployed, and, and if he's admitting that, and that was already back in April, the situation is not getting better. We'll be right back. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. 
It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jeff Sonnenfeld, a senior associate dean at the Yale School of Management and the president of the Yale Chief Executive Leadership Institute. It's kind of a fold-out business card. And I am Stephen Tian. I am one of Jeff's researchers at the Yale Chief Executive Leadership Institute. A couple of weeks ago, Jeff and Stephen released a report that made a lot of people sit up and take a second look at how sanctions are affecting the Russian economy. For months, Putin has fashioned himself the world's energy czar. The storyline was that he was holding Europe hostage, that Russia was controlling the flow of gas, so it was getting the better of the allies. Europe is already bracing for what could be a long, cold winter. Since Russia invaded Ukraine, oil prices have been surging. To make it through the winter, assuming there is a full disruption of Russian gas, we need to save gas to fill our gas storages faster. Putin claims that Europe needs their gas far more than Russia needs the money from selling it, because Russia's economy is doing just fine, thank you very much. But Jeff and Stephen and their co-authors say the world has fallen for a massive disinformation campaign. Russia actually needs those energy exports much more than Europe does because the rest of its economy is reeling. And Jeff says if we want to understand just how bad things are, we should go back to what we saw in South Africa in the 1980s. That's when major corporations pulled out of the country to protest the apartheid regime. Except in that case, Jeff says, only about 200 big corporations left. The number that have effectively pulled out of Russia since the invasion is five times that. And to ensure no one can see what kind of damage that's done, the central bank in Moscow has stopped releasing numbers that accurately reflect the health of the economy. They've destroyed 20 years of their own statistical credibility and trust in the last few months. But Jeff and Stephen found an ingenious way to get around that. We just go to the other side to get the data. It, it being in a global economy, for every buyer, there's a seller. Every seller, there's a buyer. If Russia's not going to put out the true information, it's still available. We're looking at data from the ports industry. We're looking at proprietary data from corporations and financial institutions. And we're able to draw across so many different data sources and piece together a really holistic picture of what's going on. And what they found is an economy that's barely hanging on. Multinational firms. Uh, have taken away perhaps as much as 40% of the GDP, maybe a little bit more, uh, but they also have taken away uh, a, a lot of employment. Russia acknowledges that that was at minimum 12% of their workforce. Uh, and if taking Stan that says number, he's experiencing that firsthand. Things you wouldn't necessarily think of missing have simply disappeared from Russia, like computer operating systems. Right now, uh, nearly 70% of notebooks they are coming without any operating system. So no, no windows. When you don't have windows and you have 140 million people in your country, uh, in every office and so on. So Apple and Microsoft have stopped selling their products and services in Russia. So the operating systems just don't show up in computers now. You can't get parts for your iPhone. 
And more broadly, Stan told us that stores are shuttered in his neighborhood and malls are closed. These disruptions, these little gaps, like missing an operating system, are having a ripple effect throughout the economy. And they've extended to all kinds of industries, like cars. Stevens says Russia has suspended some safety regulations on its domestic automobiles so they can continue to roll off the line. They don't have enough airbags. They don't have enough safety brakes. They're now making automobiles without airbags and without safety brakes, which I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to drive. Now, Putin says he can fix all these disruptions and keep oil money flowing by just selling energy to, say, China instead of Europe. But that's been much easier said than done. Russia just doesn't have the right infrastructure to make that shift. They don't have the pipelines to get it there. Uh, there's one narrow, creaky pipeline uh, that, go that goes into China. Which flies in the face of Putin's narrative. He says, better watch out, Europe. Winter is coming, and you're not going to have what you need to keep warm this winter. He has said it so often, it's become conventional wisdom. Even Stan believes that if he goes to Europe with his newborn, it'll be too cold. You will be crawling on the floor, which is very cold, and uh, you cannot wash him in the shower because it's freezing cold. It's not, it's not like in Russia. I asked Jeff about this. Uh, well, Stanislaw should be reassured right now. If this were six months ago, we might agree with him, but not now. Jeff says by the end of the year, Europe will have all the energy reserves it needs to keep everyone warm this winter, including Stan, who is weighing the pros and cons of leaving Russia in the next couple of months. Uh, on, on one hand, you have a school right now that suits you. Uh, you have your, your friends, you have your family to support. Uh, with kids, you have a car, but you see the country that is degra degrading. Yeah. Degrading. Yeah. And you know that in like in one hour or in three years, it will be the, the different country uh, mm -hmm. that's not comfortable for you. So Stan is trying to muster the energy to pull up stakes and move his family to Spain. So I'm trying to sleep better, uh, I'm <laughs> trying to exercise and so on. Then I'm going to, I'm uh, working with some therapist and some business coach. Or maybe he volunteers. He can set up shop in America. Maybe one of my steps, uh, next steps will be to make a U.S. Uh, company in uh, Delaware. Delaware. A new start in the fine state of Delaware. We'll keep you posted. This is Click Here. we found this story we thought might interest you. Last month, an unusual offering popped up on an English-language dark web forum. A hacker known as China Dan said he had access to a database maintained by the Shanghai police. And for a mere 10 Bitcoin, or about $200,000, you could be the proud owner of the names, phone numbers, government IDs, and police reports from about 1 billion Chinese. If the leak was as advertised, it would be unprecedented, not just because of its size, but because of its contents. It was actually on a English-speaking website that's now been taken down, uh, but that was a big breach. That's Michelangelo Zumo. I just go by Zumo. He's a cyber threat analyst with Cyber Six Guild, and we met up with him at Black Hat last week. It was actually live in Vegas this year. 
Zumo is former military, former law enforcement, and he spends a lot of time in dark markets on the web. And for him, the remarkable thing about the Shanghai police database wasn't just the leak, but what he saw happen afterward. When that was released on that specific forum, we saw a lot of Chinese actors showing up all of a sudden, interested in the forum, uh, interested in more leaks like that. You know, maybe some was because they wanted to see if their data was in that leak. In other words, people who might have tangled with the Shanghai police and would have shown up in that database were looking to see if they, personally, had been compromised. And what I was most interested in was seeing this, all of a sudden, this uptick in Chinese threat actors looking for data like that. And it was, it was funny because after that breach, there was all of a sudden a bunch of other data leaks coming out of China. News of the police database sales seemed to inspire hackers to release other Chinese private personal information, or PPI. And we, what we were trying to figure out is, was this data already available? And now Chinese threat actors just found new places to share this data, like on an English form that we found the Shanghai breach? Or did that breach encourage more of these data breaches where they were taking that data and then getting access to new networks, new databases, and then, and then compromising them that way? Whichever way it went, the, you know, the, the uptick in it was definitely more interesting to me. According to researchers who dug into the breach, the police database itself was secure. The problem was that its management dashboard was accessible from the Internet, so anyone with decent hacking skills could vacuum up the information without a password. What's ironic about all of this is that Chinese authorities have been amassing swaths of digital and biological information on the Chinese people for years. They sift through social media, collect biometric data, endlessly record the interactions of their people, and then they put all of that through an endless array of algorithms to tease out patterns. Think Minority Report on steroids. I'm placing you under arrest for the future murder of Sarah Marks. Give the man his hand. But the central government has never been all that careful about safeguarding what it collects, which is how the police data ended up in a dark web marketplace. I asked Sumo if Chinese dark web sites felt different from Russian ones, aside from their being in their respective languages. And he says the differences actually felt cultural. The sites themselves aren't that different, but when it comes to those two specific communities, Russian threat actors, they're the big bad guys down there. You know, they're, you know, all kind of working for themselves. And so they're using those different tools, developing their own tools, selling those tools to other threat actors, whether they're Russian or not. Whereas in the Chinese community, it's a little bit different. They're more about working together and kind of strengthening their community and working towards goals like that. Neither the Shanghai police nor China's cybersecurity watchdog ever commented publicly on the authenticity of last month's leak. But any mention of the breach? That appears to have been scrubbed from Chinese social media platforms like Weibo and WeChat. Here are some of the top cyber and intelligence stories from the past week. Chris Krebs, the former director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, was at the annual Black Hat Hacker Conference, calling for changes in the way the U.S. approaches cybersecurity. During a keynote address, he said Congress should create a U.S. digital agency to incorporate parts of CISA, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, and a handful of other agencies like the FTC and the FCC. I think it's time to rethink the way government interacts with technology. And I'm not just talking about cyber, I'm talking about privacy, 
talking about trust and safety issues. We're not where we need to be, and we're falling behind, and Americans are suffering as a result. Speaking of CISA, last week it released an election security toolkit. It's intended as a one-stop shop with free services and tools available for state and local election officials so they can improve the resilience of their election infrastructure. It includes links to free resources to help combat threats like phishing, ransomware, distributed denial-of-service attacks, and election-specific hacks. It also breaks down which tools can be used to protect which parts of a state's election infrastructure, from voter information, to websites, to email, to their networks. And finally, the Department of Homeland Security says don't rest easy about Log4j, the open-source software that opens hundreds of millions of devices to possible hacking. Log4j is not over. This was not like a historic look back, but we're in the clear. I mean, this is- DHS's Undersecretary for Policy, Rob Silvers, told a group at Black Hat that it'll be years, maybe a decade, before the Log4j problem will adequately be addressed. It is likely that organizations are going to be dealing with continued Log4j exposure for years to come, maybe a decade or longer. Log4j is a logging library for Java, and it's widely used by businesses and web portals. The fact that it had an exploitable flaw in its code was discovered by an engineer working for Alibaba last December. Now people are rushing to address it. Click Here is a production of The Record by Recorded Future. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, your host, writer, and executive producer. Sean Powers is our senior producer and marketing director, and Will Jarvis is our producer and helps with the writing. Karen Duffin and Lou Olkowski are our editors, Darren Ancrum is our fact-checker, and Ben Levingston composes our original music, and other music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Kendra Hanna is our intern. And very special thanks to you all. Click Here is now one of the top three tech news podcasts in America. And we want to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts. And you can connect with us at clickhereshow.com. We'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to therecord.media.